Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the Scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but really I'm aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the book of Exodus, a terrific book. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Last week, we started into the book of Exodus, chapter 1, and some introductory material. Previous episodes of Exodus and other books I've covered are available by podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Today's show, we're going to do chapter 2 and cover the birth of Moses. And then in the second half of the chapter, we'll cover the events that lead to him fleeing to Midian and the wilderness for the second third of his life, the second 40-year part of his life. Lord, be with us today. Help us to understand better from this passage who you are and what you want from us and for us in the days to come. We thank you for the life of Moses, which ranges all the way to the end of Deuteronomy. We get to open into it today. What an amazing life he had, a great servant of God. And we pray as we study the life of Moses that it would make a difference in how we live day to day. We lift this prayer up to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network, this station, and this show. We'll take a break before we get rolling, and we'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. Last week in chapter 1, we covered the oppression of Israel in Egypt after the time of Joseph, many hundreds of years before that. And then we have Pharaoh putting down an edict that the babies in Egypt would be killed, and the midwives, uh, their amazing courage, wisdom, tact for getting around Pharaoh's edict uh, lying along the way. We talked about that at great length in last week's episode. And so we start today in chapter 2, and we move from God and the midwives protecting the people to God and his family protecting an individual, and that's Moses. So we'll start in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. So here we have the birth of Moses. And it's interesting, first of all, that he's one of the few biblical characters who has covered from infancy to death. In terms of greatness, biblically, especially in the Old Testament, he rivals Abraham and David. I like what Pink says about him. In character and faith and the unique position assigned him as the mediator of the Old Covenant and in achievements, he stands first among the heroes of the Old Testament. He was the child of a slave and the son of a queen. He was born in a hut and lived in a palace. He inherited poverty and enjoyed unlimited wealth. He was the leader of armies and the keeper of flocks. He was the mightiest of warriors and the meekest of men. He was educated in the court and dwelt in the desert. He had the wisdom of Egypt and the faith of a child. He was fitted for the city and wandered in the wilderness. He was a fugitive from Pharaoh and an ambassador from heaven. 
I like the pink quote because it points to his greatness, but also the wild and crazy life that he lived, the wide variance in his experiences. And that's part of what made him a great man was those experiences. Now, in verse one, we're introduced to the parents, but they're, they are anonymous for now, keeping the focus on the child. In chapter six, verse 20, they will be identified as Amram and Jochebed. One point that comes up here that's easy to overlook is that if we consider the great passage in Hebrews 11, the Hall of Faith chapter, all of those people had parents, mothers and fathers, who did something of a good job in raising them. And it's the parents behind the heroes that we can focus on here in verse 1. The fifth commandment, which will come in chapter 20, will be to honor our parents. And we do that in part through the parents themselves, but also in the legacy that they leave through their children and grandchildren. Now, we are told about their tribe, Levi, and this is the priest-to-be tribe where Aaron, Moses' brother, will end up uh, leading the charge. Remember from Genesis 34 that this is the son and the tribe responsible for the Shechem slaughter along with Simeon. And we were told in Genesis 49 and the blessings of Jacob that they would be scattered in disgrace. As with Christ's lineage, this is a bit seedy, right? That the Levites would be where the hero comes from. But this tells us that God's grace can be extended to even the most unworthy. And it's an opportunity for redemption. And that will be embraced, particularly in Exodus 34 and Numbers 25. Matthew Henry says, and yet soon after, Moses appears as a descendant from Levi that he might typify Christ. And so what a great honor and what a great picture of redemption that Moses comes out of the tribe of Levi, which has had so much trouble towards the end of Genesis. And for now, the child is anonymous as well. We know later that this is their third child after Aaron and Miriam. There's nothing supernatural in terms of his arrival, as we had seen with the patriarchs, and as we'll see with some others later, where their births are prophesied. So again, Moses is very much a mere mortal early on. And I think a lesson for us here as well is that as mere mortals, God can look for us to do great things as well. Verse 2, the mom sees Moses as a fine child. And I think we can smile to ourselves and imagine that as a highly subjective comment. Mothers are prone to see their kids as a fine child. But apparently there was something objective to this as well. Hebrews 11.23 says that he was no ordinary child. Acts 7 verse 20 says he was no ordinary child, or literally that he was fair in the sight of God. And this alludes to not the mom's view of Moses, but God's view of Moses. The Hebrew terms here are also really interesting. It means literally that she saw that he was good. And so that may cause your ears to ring with the language of Genesis 1. When God is creating things and he says it was good, that's the same language used here. P.H. Reardon notes that thus God's salvific deed in Exodus is here set in intentional parallel with his creative work in Genesis. Now, verse 2 says his mother hid him for three months. And of course, this is in response to the edict in chapter 1, verse 22 of Pharaoh against the baby boys. Now, we're not told how she did this. In our culture, we might think of dressing a child in pink to make it seem like it's not a boy. Uh, as a girl instead, we're not told what happens here. But she does something to hide him, perhaps to disguise him. And as with the midwives in chapter 1, we found another time when violating the law is perfectly justified. Matthew Henry observes further 
that we should observe the beauty of providence just at the time when Pharaoh's cruelty rose to this height, the deliverer was born, though he did not appear for many years after. Note when men are projecting the church's ruin, God is preparing for its salvation. And you know that the people of Israel were praying against Pharaoh, praying for God's salvation, and their prayers are being answered with deliverance, but they wouldn't know it for 80 years. And how sobering that is for us in our prayer life, that we lift prayers up to God and we don't know the timing of when he will accomplish his will. And yet we're called to pray in any case. As we look at verse 2 in the scheme of history, this is a seemingly small action. But think what God is going to do with this. We just never know when our small actions are going to cause such big ripple effects. Pink says that big doors often swing on small hinges And we should also recognize that the mother and others here are probably risking their lives had Moses been discovered, as we saw with the midwives back in chapter 1. Hebrews 11.23 tells us that she hid him by faith. Matthew Henry says, duty is ours, events are God's. Again, faith in God will set us above the ensnaring fear of man. And so that's what she does here. She doesn't fear man. She fears God, has faith in God, and does her duty. Pink observes, in this instance, grace did not run counter to natural affection. Nevertheless, it was not by feelings, but by faith that they acted. Then verse 3 says, but there came a time when she could hide him no longer. Matthew Henry says about this, thus to have exposed their child while they might have preserved it would have been to tempt providence, but when they could not, it was to trust providence. So they do what they can, and when they've done all they can, they're going to trust Moses completely to God. Last point here is that putting the emphasis on the mother in verse 2 is different from what we read in the parallel passages in Acts 7 and Hebrews 11, which talks about the faith of the parents or that Moses was in his father's house. But that's important for what's happening in Exodus because the emphasis in this narrative is on the women and their opposition to Pharaoh. Now they're going to basically defeat Pharaoh And that's part of the rhetoric and the polemic of this passage that Pharaoh, who sees himself as a god, is seen as a god by his people, will be defeated by the Hebrew god and a bunch of women. Verse 3 also describes what we might call Moses' ark. It's a papyrus basket with tar and pitch. And it's the same language as is used of Noah's ark in Genesis 6. Now, one of the ironies here is that this is an Egyptian word, and it is the only time that it's used in the text, here and in Genesis 6. And so using an Egyptian word to describe how Israel will be delivered from Egypt is awesome. The word literally means a box, a chest, or a coffin, and there were potential Hebrew words available standing in for boat, ship, box, or basket. But the Lord saw fit to use an Egyptian word, part of the polemic and rhetoric, of what's happening here in the book of Exodus against Pharaoh and against the gods of Egypt. The other thing is that we're meant to see the clear connections between the two stories of Moses' ark and Noah's ark. First of all, both of them are near the beginning of their respective books, Genesis and Exodus. Both of them are floating containers preserving life in contrast to the water and the drowning and the, the world system that threatens them. Both took faith to build. Both were daubed with pitch. Both emphasized the common biblical theme of God delivering his wholly dependent servants from crisis. But there are notable differences here as well. Noah was an old man. Moses is a baby. Noah saved the human race and the animals. Moses is the deliverer of the Jews. And in this, both are a type of Christ. 
And then verse 3 ends with the mother putting it among the reeds in the Nile. Ironically, she's throwing her baby into the Nile, as had been commanded by Pharaoh back in chapter 1, verse 22. And from a God perspective, she's throwing him into the mouth of the river god, the Nile, that Egypt saw as a god. We talked about how the midwives had violated the letter, if not the spirit of the law, back in chapter 1. Here, at least, Moses' mom is adhering to the letter of law here. She is putting her baby into the Nile, although, of course, not the spirit of the law the Pharaoh intended that such throwing would result in the baby's deaths. And, of course, she puts him in the reeds, not in the river per se. So God will provide, but she's participating. She's acting in a very reasonable manner to make this as easy on God, so to speak, as possible. Interesting as well that the language here is the Sea of Reeds, which is foreshadowing the deliverance of Israel through the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds in a number of chapters. And then I've got a number of lousy jokes this week. Uh, The first is that we know Moses had psychological problems early on. From his early months, he was in denial. Okay, sorry. How did mom feel about all this? You You think about Isaac with Abraham. We think about Christ with God. Does mom... You know, surely her heart's pounding in this moment, but is she walking in faith? How strong is that faith? Is it a matter of fatalism uh, that she has to do it at some point? We're not told, but it's interesting to consider to put ourselves in the shoes of Moses's mom and to think what this moment would have been like. Again, amazing courage and faith at some level is going on here. All right, let's take our first break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the first segment, we covered Exodus 2, 1 through 3. I'm going to start halfway through 3 and then read through verse 10. Then Moses' mother placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. So in verse 5, we're introduced to Pharaoh's daughter, and that gets me to two more bad jokes. The greatest female entrepreneur in the Bible is Pharaoh's daughter. She went down to the bank of the Nile and drew out a little prophet. Now, the greatest male investor, that was Noah. He was floating his stock while everyone else was in liquidation. Well, let's get back to serious stuff. Matthew Henry observes the irony here that God often raises up friends for his people, even among their enemies. Pharaoh's cruelty seeks Israel's destruction, but his own daughter charitably compassions a Hebrew child, and not only so, but beyond her intention, preserves Israel's deliverer. Verse 4 introduces us to the anonymous sister, who we later learn is Miriam. Chapter 15, verse 20 is when she's identified, and she stays close. We'll be introduced to older brother Aaron in chapter 7, verse 7. We know he's three years older. We don't know how much older Miriam is than Moses. 
In verse 7, we see Miriam's courageous participation, again reminiscent of the midwives in chapter 1, when she asks, a powerful person, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women? You know, how much fear does Miriam have here? Is this childlike and innocence that is winning out here? We might even read in this not nearly as much reverence as one would expect, almost asking as if a peer, but it must have been respectful enough for Pharaoh's daughter to respond positively. We also don't know if this is mom's plan, and she certainly had done that in the first three verses, or is this more Miriam's idea? In any case, is this an intuition or more born out of desperation? Were the slave girl and the attendants in verse 5 in on the plan? We don't know. We can only speculate here. I like what Jonathan Sachs says. I'm profoundly moved by that encounter on the banks of the Nile between an Egyptian princess and a young Israelite child, Moses' sister, Miriam. The contrast between them in terms of age, culture, status, and power could not be greater. Yet their deep humanity bridges all these differences, all the distance, to heroines, May they inspire us. Verse 6, we have Moses crying. This elicits her sympathy and desire to rescue. Verse 8, then she agrees to Miriam's plan. And here we see not just the women participating, but of course God's providential provision in this miraculous saving of Moses. For Pharaoh's daughter, this starts with pity, and not just for this baby, but probably more broadly for the many women who had recently murdered babies. But she doesn't just start at the sentiment of pity. I love Marvin Olasky's observation about how the word compassion has changed in the American and English dictionaries. The compassion is derived from two Latin words, calm and pati, meaning to suffer with. The compassion used to mean that you had to get your hands dirty. Anymore, compassion's a sentiment. And that's not where she's at. She's getting her hands very dirty here in making this move. This is true compassion. It also parallels God responding to Israel's cries with pity and action as well. And then let's think big picture. It's as if the Nile and the God of the Nile had providentially delivered a child to Pharaoh's daughter. She may be seeing it that way, but of course we see this as God's providence, the one true God. Moses is saved from crocodiles, drowning, and others who could not or would not save him, and put into the arms of Pharaoh's daughter, guided to the proper place, and it's put on her heart to be sympathetic. Matthew Henry observes the parallel with Christ. Herein, Moses was a type of Christ who, in his infancy, was forced to abscond in an Egypt too, Matthew 2, verse 13, and was wonderfully preserved when many innocents were butchered. One more small detail, verse 5, the slave girl would have parted the reeds, which again foreshadows Israel's deliverance, where there's a parting of the sea of reeds. Verse 9, the mom is chosen as a wet nurse, which is basically a nanny with milk. Great picture of grace here. She's paid for the immense pleasure of getting to feed her own child. It reminds me of Psalm 22, verses 9 and 10. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Verse 10, as he grew older, the adoption is made official. He becomes her son. This is not just a moment's compassion. This is not just, you know, responding to a baby's cry in the river. This is full responsibility. We don't know for sure, but it's likely that she was childless. And again, if so, that would parallel what we talked about last week with the midwives in chapter 1. This also means that Moses was raised in a godly family, at least for a while. 
after weaning, but we're not sure how long that is defined. Is that just when the milk is being used or is that figurative for when education, formal education would have started? Acts 7 seems to take this angle. Verse 22 there says, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. And that follows the phrase in verse 21 that uh, she brought him up as her own son. So it reads as if it's education, which is when uh, Moses' mother would have given her up. In any case, Moses wouldn't have been very old. And so it does make you wonder about where God influence Moses, uh, to what extent the family was used. Did Moses learn about God through family? Does he just learn about God through Egypt and about God later? Uh, we're not really sure exactly how that plays out. And imagine how the birth mom would feel. Tough for her, but probably easier this time. She had given him up once already, and Moses is not nearly as vulnerable now, and he's going to a great place. On the other hand, she's had a lot more time to bond with him. That he was going into Pharaoh's household is probably encouraging. You know, such a prominent household would make her feel probably pretty good. But the most important point here is that she has faith in God's evident sovereignty. It's reminiscent to me of the story of Hannah giving birth to Samuel. They are clearly stewards of God's baby. And this is a lesson for us. Do we see our children this way? We often talk about stewards of possessions, but we are stewards of our children as well. I think all of this also points out to how purposeful Moses' parents would have been in whatever time they had. We know that Aaron and Miriam also turn out well. And so it's a matter of imagination, but we're figuring that Moses' parents were very intentional when they had Moses for that length of time. Now, she named him Moses. Now, this is an Egyptian name, and we find it in other Egyptian kings of that time frame, Amos and Tutmos. Matthew Henry observes that the calling of the Jewish lawgiver by an Egyptian name is a happy omen to the Gentile world. Or putting it more succinctly, giving Moses an Egyptian name uh, is a wonderful indication that the gospel and God's relationship is not simply for the Israelites. It's an Egyptian name, but it sounds like the Hebrew for drew out. Verse 10, drew him out of the water, is a play on Moses' name, and again, a foretelling of Israel's deliverance from the water. The last thing about his name is that, contrary to Joseph, whose adoptive name we learn, and Daniel, whose Babylonian name we're also given, he remains Moses throughout. We don't even know his birth name. A minute ago, we speculated about Moses' mom, and now we might speculate about the adoptive mom, Pharaoh's daughter. We know even less and can have less helpful speculation on her, but it's interesting to imagine what sort of mother she might have been. In any case, Jonathan Sachs observes that Pharaoh's daughter is one of the most unexpected heroes of the Bible. On the one hand, she can do what she wants as royalty, but on the other hand, she's rebelling against her father. So this does take tremendous courage, and to violate a royal edict in front of others is potentially more dangerous than other people doing it. We'll see later in this chapter that Moses will fail at keeping a secret, but she's able to do it here. She's not defeated by gossip, rumor, pique, or revenge. Prager observes, Pharaoh had a genocidal hatred for the Israelites, but his daughter was a great humanitarian. Biology is not destiny. Great point that Dennis Prager makes there. She steps out in faith of some sort, wanting what she wants, uh, loving a child, and is willing to go against her father, which is a remarkable thing. Another intriguing question is, did Pharaoh know that Moses was Jewish? 
We saw in chapter 2, verse 6, that she's able to identify the baby as Jewish, and that might be from physical characteristics, or it might just be the circumstances of the moment that allow her to do that. If he knew that he was Jewish, it's interesting that he would compromise on this, especially with his daughter. Maybe he's thinking one little baby can't hurt, or it's for his daughter, and again, if she's childless, then he's really happy that she has a baby and a son. In any case, we have the irony that Pharaoh ends up being Moses' grandpa. So to me, the coolest thing of this first chapter and a half of Exodus is that Pharaoh is thwarted three times by women. The midwives, chapter 1, verse 17. The Israelite mothers, chapter 1, verse 19. And here by Moses' mother, sister, and his own daughter. All of this highlights his impotence to destroy God's people and God's plan, especially given how women were viewed in that culture. Alec Motyer says, ranged against the might of Pharaoh was a series of seemingly insignificant women. He's seen as omnipotence, but he can't get it done here. He's seen as omniscient, but they're able to preserve secrets against him. Another irony here is that Israel's future deliverer was a member of the Egyptian royal family and that Pharaoh sought to preserve the daughters, but it's the women who were his downfall. Pink observes, Pharaoh proposed to deal wisely with the Israelites, and yet in the end, God compels him to give board, lodging, and education to the very man who accomplished the very thing that Pharaoh was trying to prevent. Thus was Pharaoh's wisdom turned to foolishness, and Satan's devices defeated. Or as Alec Motyer puts it, the river cannot capture its prey, and even Pharaoh's house is changed from destroyer to savior. Last thought here is that it's interesting that Moses appears on the scene without obvious announcement. There's no angels, for example, announcing the coming of Moses. But on the other hand, the providence behind this is equally dramatic. God is not mentioned explicitly, but he's all over the page, and God is winning the battle handily over Pharaoh and the Nile. It turns out that the decisive event has already happened, but how long would it take for God's plan to be revealed? In the meanwhile, generations are born into and dying in slavery, while God seems to be doing nothing. But yet we know as the readers, God is busy at work. May this be an encouragement to us as we pray. It seems at times that God is not moving, but God is always moving in history and in our lives. And we just need to be patient, to live in the present in light of eternity with a good and great God. All right, let's take a break here. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Podcast of previous episodes are available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Comments and questions are always welcome on my Facebook. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Exodus 2 today, and in the first two segments, we covered verses 1 through 10, which is basically the first few years of Moses' life. And then the second half of today's show, we're going to do verses 11 through 25, which are the key moments at age 40 when he goes from Pharaoh's household to the wilderness. So we start in verses 11 and 12. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The first phrase of note is, after Moses had grown up, we're told in Acts 7.23 that he's 40 years old at this point. Certainly implies the education and formative years in the Egyptian system with its culture, language, discipline, and curricula, including an emphasis on writing, which would turn out to come in handy, of course. Very similar to Daniel and especially Joseph in this regard, and we're most interested in Joseph in the context of Genesis and concerns about whether 
the potential hero of the story has been acculturated to Egypt, right? Has he been become enmeshed in that culture, or can he stand apart as holy? Ian Thomas has a lot to say about this episode in his great book, The Saving Life of Christ. So I'm going to quote him quite a bit. But he opens the section by saying, this is the portrait that God gives us of the man in the prime of life, highly qualified and filled with a sense of urgency, poised, it would seem, upon the threshold of a brilliant career, but only a few hours away from a tragic blunder that made him useless to God or man for 40 years in the backside of the desert. So everything looks great, but it's about to go south. It seems to start off innocently enough. Verse 11 says that he was watching them and witnessed an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. Now, this would have probably been very sobering given how he spent his formative years. It begs questions about how sheltered had he been as a child and as an adult. Josephus reports that he had been on a military campaign to deliver Ethiopia. And if that's the case, then he's seen quite a bit of life and probably life in Egypt. But if he was more sheltered, this would have been more shocking. I think this also would have gotten him to answer the question, who am I? Like Joseph, am I of Egypt or Israel? Am I my birth parents or my adoptive parents? What class, ethnicity? Did he have contact with his birth family at all? Did resentful Egyptians tease him about his background? If he had been more sheltered, maybe with respect to ethnicity, maybe he was realizing that he looked more like those in the field than those in the house. In any case, there seems to be an awakening of some sort here. Notice that there's no information on what the Hebrew did. Within the context of a slave-master relationship, it's not clear that it matters all that much, but it probably speaks to some sort of justice issue. It could be that he's driven by some sort of patriotism or favoritism, but that turns out to be less likely given the two future interventions that we'll read about in the rest of this chapter. In any case, I think it's important to note that he's not driven by a, quote, slave mentality. He's willing to lead. He's willing to set people free. He's willing to fight for his perception of justice against injustice. Verse 12, we have him engaging in somewhat premeditated murder, playing the role of judge and savior deliverer. The savior-deliverer part, of course, will come in handy later. And this is a reasonable goal, justice, prevention of more injustice, etc. Understandable emotions, admirable passion. He's got zeal and also a temper. He's willing to take risks, but ultimately he fails because this is an ungodly method. At the end of Romans 12, Paul will write a similar warning. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Again, we're speculating. We don't know whether he had some sense of what God wanted from him, but if he had that sense, he's rushing the timing and acting in his own strength here. Another way to think about it is that he's doing God's work, perhaps, but in man's way. Ian Thomas here says, in a false sense of dedication, he committed himself to the task instead of to God. Dennis Prager defends Moses here, asking what else should he have done. In any case, Moses is a man of action and passion, but it needed to be channeled. Now, that's an opposition to do-nothings and the apathetic. So we know this is something God can work with. We saw this with Jacob in Genesis. We see it in Peter in the Gospels. And of course, this is yet another example that our biblical heroes are portrayed warts and all. Verse 12 is interesting. It says he looked both ways before he killed the guy and he didn't see anyone. So he's explicitly thinking that others and implicitly that God wouldn't see. 
Again, Ian Thomas is helpful here. Two quotes. He says, in his sensitivity to the presence of man, he became strangely insensitive to the presence of God. The one way he did not look was up. Thomas continues, had Moses been overwhelmingly confident that his actions merited God's complete approval, he would have been indifferent to other men's reactions. In the center of God's will, one can afford to be lonely in the face of public opinion. And that's not where Moses is at at this point. Verse 12, he tries to hide it, but how well? He's left at least a Hebrew witness who may have told others. And of course, it turns out that his secrecy plans don't work nearly as well as his birth and adoptive mother's have been successful in doing. In any case, Nahum Sarna says, by this act, Moses has decisively thrown in his lot with his suffering people and has psychologically severed his ties to his aristocratic and privileged Egyptian past. His instinctive indignation has effectively overcome his self-interest. And Sarna goes on to note that this foreshadows the future by revealing his character and his commitments, his passion for justice, especially for his people, but also his flaws and thus the need for Midian, which we'll see by the end of the chapter. Verse 13, the next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? So the phrase the next day tells us that things are moving in fairly rapid motion. You know, just a few days earlier, Moses is just doing his thing. And now two days later, he's into his second troubling scenario in a row. This time he's upset the two Hebrews are fighting. Matthew Henry says, It does not appear what was the occasion, but whatever it was, it was certainly very unseasonable for Hebrews to strive with one another when they were oppressed and ruled with rigor by the Egyptians. Had they not beating enough from the Egyptians, but they must beat one another? Note, first, even sufferings in common do not always unite God's professing people to one another, so much as one might reasonably expect. And second, when God raises up instruments of salvation for the church, they will find enough to do, not only with oppressing Egyptians, but with quarrelsome Israelites. And in the church and with ourselves, we find both internal and external problems. So Moses shows restraint here. He talks this time, or as Matthew Henry puts it, mildly reasoned with him, rather than murdering, as in verse 12, why didn't he kill this aggressor? There's a number of possible explanations here. It could be nationalism. That turns out to be less likely given his encounter with the shepherds later in chapter 2. It could be that he's more introspective after the events of 11 and 12 and sobered by how that ended up. It could be that it's just not as serious. They're beating each other and fighting. But in this case, we have equal power. There's no oppressor, oppressee in this context. It's two peers fighting each other. And it's interesting at least for the reader, that he's acting as a uniter and mediator rather than a deliverer, which shows a different side, which will come into handy later in the narrative. Verses 14 and 15, the man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. First, a small thing that gives a little bit of a clue for the context here. We've been wondering how Moses and others see him as an Israelite or as an Egyptian. The man refers to him here uh, as killing the Egyptian as if he's an Israelite. So that's one little clue that uh, might help us understand how Moses and the others see him. The, The question here, you know, reeks of sarcasm. Who made you ruler and judge over us? Very similar to Genesis 19.9 with Sodom and Gomorrah. And of course, if we know what's coming later, we all kind of laugh and go, well, no one yet, but he will be ruler and judge at some point. 
But again, it's not in the right timing or the right strength. Moses at this point has taken this to vigilante justice and really anarchy. Moses had the trappings of power, but without any real authority, he has the form without the substance. Or we might say he's all hat and no cattle. Now, there are a number of problems with this response. First of all, he doesn't really answer Moses's question. Second, he's talking back. He's challenged Moses's authority. Matthew Henry knows a man needs no great authority for giving a friendly reproof. It is an act of kindness, yet this man interprets it as an act of dominion. Thus, when people dislike good discourse or a seasonable admonition, they call it preaching, or we might add, they call it judging. So Moses has asked a very reasonable question, and this guy gets really upset, which underlines his guilt. It also foreshadows Moses' later difficulties in dealing with quite an unruly people. In style, it's impatient, impudent, sarcastic. They have little to lose as slaves, or maybe this is just standard defensiveness. Matthew Henry again, it is a sign of guilt to be impatient of reproof, and it is often easier to persuade the injured to bear the trouble of taking wrong than the injurious to bear the conviction of having done wrong. And then his answer, are you thinking of killing me? Sounds like it's motivated by resentment and envy. He may see Moses as a sellout. It also has some application to bringing up another's past to defend ourselves. He's got some dirt. He's got a trump card that he plays to defend himself here. And he's also using exaggeration. Again, Matthew Henry, Moses, for reproving him, is immediately charged with a design to kill him. An attempt upon his sin was interpreted as an attempt upon his life. But the intimidation works. Verse 14, Moses now fears about being found out. You can imagine his expectations are way off what he actually receives here. He was probably expecting some commendation from the Israelites or, uh, you know, sorry, we'll do better next time or something. But to fire up on him and accuse him of this was probably not at all what he was expecting. Now, why would Pharaoh try to have him killed at this point? Is it he's a bad employee? He's a traitor and a patriot to Israel? Is he encouraging anarchy? Or maybe we're back to the father-daughter relationship that he deferred, but maybe he was looking for a reason to get rid of Moses if he caused trouble. And then back to Moses' fear, it's reasonable for him to be afraid, but he's more concerned with being caught rather than being right. Again, this is a sign of false repentance than true repentance. If you're worried about getting caught and regretting the ineffectiveness of what you've done, you're not really sorry for it. So let's sum up verses 11 through 15 with three lessons that we learn here. One is Moses's inability to accomplish the task. Ian Thomas says, when Moses tried to tackle the job, he could not even bury one Egyptian successfully. When God tackled the job, he buried the whole lot of them in the Red Sea. That is how competent God is to deal with his own business. Moses tries to take this into his own hands and his own timing and fails brutally. Verses 13 and 14 indicate that Moses' large recent sin incapacitated his effectiveness. This is standard stuff with hypocrisy, the log and the speck that Jesus talks about. And whether it's right or fair or not, this is the way the world operates. Large recent sin will always incapacitate your effectiveness. And then in verse 15, when Pharaoh tries to have him killed, Moses flees. And that leads us to the next part of the story But he's discouraged in his first two attempts to deliver on justice. He has zeal, but it has turned deadly. He's he's murdered one person. That's caused him to be ineffective in this case. It's caused him all sorts of trouble. And so for us, it's important to have both zeal and purity as we look for God's goals and God's methods.
We see this throughout the scriptures. It's not enough to want the things of God. That's a good start, but to pursue them in the proper timing and the proper strength is also crucial. That's a lesson Moses has not learned and a lesson he'll get to learn in the wilderness of Midian. It's a good place for us to take a break. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Exodus 2 today. The first two segments we did verses 1 through 10, Moses' early years. And then verses 11 through 25, the second half of the chapter, we have the key crisis moment uh, where he intervenes twice improperly, ends up having to flee Pharaoh's wrath, and ends up in Midian. And that's where we pick up the text at this point, verses 15 through 17. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. Verse 15, he flees to Midian. You might remember if you have a really good memory. This is one of Abraham's younger sons, named in Genesis 25-2. The term means dry and desolate, and that's in contrast to Egypt, the Nile, and the royalty from which he came, also quite different from Israel and the Promised Land. It's in the Sinai Peninsula, and often called the Wilderness. Apparently it's near Mount Sinai or Horeb and the Gulf of Aqaba. All of this would be very important experience as he gears up for his second 40 years in the Wilderness after God uses him to deliver Israel from Egypt. We're not sure why he goes there. You know, at the least, he's trying to get lost and trying to get away from Pharaoh. It's also interesting to consider how much introspection he would have had on the journey along the way before the events unfold in verses 16 and following. Verse 16, we're introduced to the priest of Midian. Verse 18, he'll be identified as Ruel, which means friend of God. He's also called Jethro in chapter 3, verse 1. He's a local leader, he's a spiritual mentor to Moses, and his most important contribution is suggesting the judge's form of government in Exodus 18, which we'll read about in quite a few shows from now. Verse 17, the highlight here is he rescues the daughters from these bullying shepherds. One easy application here is the importance of standing up to bullies in any case, and practically most of the time they usually back down. Big picture, Moses is bouncing back in his third attempt to deal with injustice after his two recent failures. This is between killing and mediation. He pursues proper methods and has a successful outcome. It also indicates his ability to persevere, the depth of his character and his passion, and his sense of calling. He doesn't devolve into self-pity. He doesn't descend into sins of omission and passivity, especially Given his past failures, this would have been a likely outcome. How often do we make mistakes? We start off energetic, we get beaten a few times and back off. Moses doesn't do that. He just keeps coming. There's other things that make this even more impressive. He had just traveled a long distance, and he defeats multiple shepherds, again, apparently without using any violence. Notice he's also ignoring and reversing class, race, and gender. He acts as a foreigner. He defends female shepherds, and keep in mind that if he's seen as an Egyptian, this would have been really impressive because Egyptians were known to despise shepherds. And so this Egyptian-looking man 
would have intervened on behalf of female shepherds. Very impressive. After saving them, he serves them. And so he's a servant leader, a la Jesus. And all of this is despite his white bread upbringing, getting his hands dirty. If Particularly if he was sheltered, this is a great sign that he's strong and compassionate. But perhaps he's also been trained for battle. Again, it depends on exactly what Moses' background has been. Again, Moses seeks to deliver others from harm. This third time he is successful. Here he plays the role of defender, protector, deliverer, rescuer. He's basically a knight in shining armor and the water boy. He continues to identify with the underdog, much like his adoptive mother. One interesting difference here, this is with strangers. Previously, he had been defending his people against themselves and against others, Sachs observes here with absolute economy, all the permutations are covered. The story of the Exodus is about impartial justice, and Moses, as a man of justice, is prepared to act and take risks for its sake. His willingness and passion to deal out justice with respect to Egypt, Israel, and Midian eliminates patriotism as a primary motive, and it's rooted in who Moses is, and that's absolutely crucial. Dennis Prager looks at all three of these episodes and notes there are three ways to respond to evil, to fight back, speak out, and stand, and sees Moses doing all three in order. Quote, Moses is chosen by God not just because he fights against evil, but because he knows which response is most appropriate in any given situation. So Prager takes a more optimistic view of this. I think we can see him as either making two mistakes and finally emerging. Uh, Prager takes the more optimistic view that all three of these were well chosen. And finally, this is a little thing, but as Matthew Henry notes, wherever the providence of God casts us, we should desire and endeavor to be useful. And when we cannot do the good we would, we must be ready to do the good we can. And he that is faithful in a little shall be entrusted with more. Again, we're happy that Moses is stepping up in this little moment that ends up being much bigger than he expects. Verses 18 through 22, when the girls returned to rule their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? He asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become an alien in a foreign land. So 18 and 19, the daughters recount the story to their father. Again, we have women at the heart of the introduction to the book of Exodus. It also implies regularity in the details that they share. One wonders why Jethro didn't handle this differently. Is this passivity on his part? Maybe it's beyond his ability at his age to handle all these shepherds. The drawing of water reminds us of Moses' name, which means to draw from the water. Verse 19, they perceive him to be an Egyptian. We made this point a few minutes ago. And in any case, as with Joseph, it represents the no man's land of his identity. Who is he? Is he Egyptian? Is he Israelite? How will he resolve this dilemma? We remember this with Joseph. We'll see it again with Moses. And then verse 18, Jethro's reference to so soon implies that this is a common problem. Whether they've told their dad about it or not, It's interesting that they're back early, and so instead of having the shepherds bully them this time and hold them off the water and delay their return, this time Moses intervenes and allows them to return much more quickly. Verse 20, we get the excited invitation from Ruel and the hospitality. 
That's hard to know if he's just excited in general, or maybe especially because he's got all these daughters and this seems like a man who might be uh, a good marriage partner for one of them. It's interesting as well that Moses' intervention this time wins friends, and that was not the case the first two times. I think that's another signal, not always, but often a signal that we're doing things well is when it's pleasing to other people, particularly when we're fighting on their behalf. In verse 21, we learn that Moses has a new home and region now as he settles in, and he's given a wife, Zipporah. As a Cushite, this is an interracial marriage, which is really interesting for lots of reasons, and it will have God's explicit later approval in chapter 12 in the book of Numbers. And then in verse 22, he's given a son, and he names him Gershom. The name's meaning is interesting, that he had become an alien in a foreign land, which implies that he wasn't before. But the fact is, the reader knows at least, that he's been an alien his whole life. Now, he has been recently welcomed warmly into Jethro's house, and so it probably does feel different to him. But he's being treated well. He is in a foreign land. This is not what he's used to, and he settles in for the next phase of his life. The name also foreshadows because the name comes from the Hebrew stem for to drive off or to drive out. And that's what we saw him do with the shepherds here. It's also a great description of his life in exile as a fugitive that he was driven off. And later it's going to be what he does through God's power with Pharaoh driving him out as well. In fact, the same term comes around in chapter 6, verse 1, 11, verse 1, and 12, 39. The same phrase is used here as well. But for now, the reader doesn't know that. It reads like he's settling down to a comfortable and maybe a complacent lifestyle, albeit quite different from what he had in Egypt. All right, verses 23 through 25. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So this passage serves as an interlude between the quick run of events in Moses' life, his early years, and then the climactic moments around the age of 40, and the big events that will get us into chapter 3 and the next big phase of Moses' life. Verse 23 opens by calling this a long period. We know from Acts 7.30 that this is 40 years. Again, this long period's in the wilderness, so this is going to be useful for his wilderness time later. Verse 23 also tells us that the king dies, probably setting the table for Moses' return. Now, this would probably lead to an unknown change in conditions, but the possibility of amnesty with a new king that would not be as hostile or maybe hostile at all. To Moses. Verse 23 is the Israelites are oppressed and groaning in slavery. We'll see this again in chapter 3, verse 7. This seems very specific. This is not just a general moaning, but they're groaning and oppressed with respect to their slavery. And of course, all of this seems really serious. Now, later we'll see the Israelites perfectly willing to moan and groan about silly things, but that's not what's happening here. The text is not clear about whether the oppression and groaning are to God or not. Does this imply a degree of repentance and revival? The text here is not totally clear. There are a couple passages that actually go different ways with this. Numbers 20 verses 14 through 16, Moses later writes about this. 
and says, the Egyptians mistreated us and our ancestors, but when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our cry and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. Ezekiel 20, verses 8 and 9, takes a different angle. It says, But they rebelled against me and would not listen to me. They did not get rid of the vile images they had set their eyes on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. So I said I would pour out my wrath on them and spend my anger against them in Egypt. But for the sake of my name, I brought them out of Egypt. I did it to keep my name from being profaned in the eyes of the nations among whom they lived and whose sight I had revealed myself to the Israelites." So we're not quite sure the time frame, but this is obviously much more negative and pessimistic about the spiritual state of the Israelites in Egypt. So it's possible that we can imagine different time frames handling these situations, or maybe it's there's a faithful remnant versus others who are idolaters. Either way is fine, but one imagines that at least some people are crying out to God in the difficulties they face, and we do that all the time. Verse 24 is a reference to long-dead patriarchs, and among other things, this underlines their need for patience, and there's still many years to go until God is going to deliver them. There's still a lot of trouble ahead. Political change is not going to make any difference, at least short-term. The best they can do for now is pray and leave it to God. And the reader knows, verses 23 through 25, that God hears and God remembers his covenant. He looked on them, verse 25, Same term that's used in chapter 2, verse 11, in the watching them just before Moses' failure and concerned for, literally knew the Israelites is the language here. Brings to mind is an interesting phrase. The $2 word for this is an anthropomorphism where God is given a human characteristic. I love what Alec Motyer says here. The passage therefore depicts the unforgetting God as though he were capable of forgetting and depicts our prayers as having the marvelous effect of causing him to remember. The other thing this language does figuratively is that it implies God was about to take action. The hidden presence of God would become manifest. The silence of God would be broken. God would move, he would listen, and he would deliver. Related to all this is why the delay within God's sovereignty? Why doesn't God move quicker? I think there are three basic answers to this, right? The first is that Egypt and Canaan were not yet ready. Deliverance for Israel is going to mean de facto judgment for Egypt as Israel leaves and for Canaan as Israel arrives at the promised land. Related to this, the new Pharaoh could have freed the Israelites. Of course, he doesn't. He just doubles down on what the previous Pharaoh did. But he had the opportunity. All this underlines God's patience and his justice. Second Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. It could be that Israel was not ready yet, that more work needed to be done with them, physically, spiritually, intellectually, whatever. And I think an easy possibility here is that Moses still had much to learn. He already had the education and training to be a leader. Here he becomes accustomed to hardship and poverty, learns about contemplation and devotion in the wilderness, and moves from rash to super patient, as we'll see when he deals with the people of Israel when they're complaining in the wilderness. Matthew Henry observes, he lacked one thing in which the court of Egypt could not give him. He that was to do all by divine revelation must know by a long experience what it was like to live a life of communion with God. Lord, we're so thankful for your patience. We're thankful for your redemption, both of which are pictured so ably in the story of Moses. We pray that we would remain patient, that we would seek redemption for ourselves and others in the difficulties and the mistakes that we've made, knowing that you're a God who's faithful wants the best for us, wants great things from us and for us in the days to come. 
It's been good to be with you today. Previous podcasts are available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google. And we hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.